Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in Genesis. We're almost done with the book. We have one more Torah portion to go after this. But this week we find ourselves in portion Vayigash, which means, uh, and he approached. And it's in Genesis 44, 18 through 47, 27. Now, last week, uh, the Torah portion ended in a cliffhanger. Um, as you know, the, the brothers had come to Egypt to uh, get food to take back home, and uh, Joseph instructed his servant to take his silver goblet and hide it in Benjamin's sack of food. And then after the brothers had left the city and were on their way back home, Joseph sent his servant after them and uh, to ask them, why did you do this terrible thing? You stole my master's cup. And they denied it, of course, because they had no knowledge of it. But as the servant went through each man's bag of feed and food, they came to Benjamin's, and lo and behold, there it was. And so they all come back to the city. They come back to, uh, to Joseph's home. And, um, and they think, oh, my goodness, what have we gotten ourselves into? They were miserable. And it says there at the beginning... In chapter 44, verse 18, then Judah approached him, and that word approach, from the word gasha. Uh, remember that word gasha, because we're going to encounter it a few more times through the portion. And he said, if you please, my Lord, may your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger flare up at your ser- servant, for you are like Pharaoh. When he says you're like Pharaoh, it says... Uh, it's interesting the way it's worded. It says, ki kamoka kafaro, because you are like Pharaoh, or like Pharaoh, you are like, or Pharaoh is like you. The way it's worded means to talk to you is like talking to Pharaoh. To talk to Pharaoh is like talking to you. You're like one and the same, two halves of the same thing. And so Judah, this shepherd from Canaan, is now standing before basically the ruler of the world, before Joseph. But he doesn't know this is Joseph, his brother. So let not your anger flare up at your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord has asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an older father, an old father, and a young child of his, old age. His brother is dead. He alone is left from his mother, and his father loves him. And um, so Judah steps forward. The question is, why did Judah step forward? Um, Judah was the fourth born. Reuben was the oldest, then Simeon, then Levi, and then Judah was number four. But Judah steps forward instead of his older three brothers. Why was this? Well, if you recall from earlier, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. So I think Judah felt the most guilty for everything that had transpired over the previous 22 years since they had sold Joseph into slavery and then this moment. Judah and Judas, by the way, are the same name. So we have this amazing parallel. Uh, Judas, Judah betrays his brother Joseph and sells him for silver. Later on, Judas sells the Messiah for silver. And the guilt must have been horrible. This reminds me of last week's uh, Torah service we had at Beth Tacoon. 
And uh, we had a couple gentlemen come up and read from the Torah and share some comments. And Brian Kima uh, shared some really insightful things with us. And he asked us a question. He said, which would you rather be? Would you rather be an innocent person serving time in prison for something you did not do? Or would you rather be guilty of a crime and yet be free, not get caught? And it's an interesting question. Because Brian's point was, is that even though our bodies can be free, we can be imprisoned and enslaved in our minds. Our minds can be imprisoned. Or our bodies can be imprisoned and our minds can be free. And what we see with Joseph and with his brothers are examples of both of these. Joseph spent time in prison. He spent time as a slave and then time in prison as a servant there. But his mind was free. His conscience was clear. And we have indications he actually lived a joyful life. Whereas his brothers were physically free, but they were in hell. For 22 years, you can see that this was eating away at them, what they had done. How could they possibly look their father in the face? Every time they looked at their father Jacob and saw the grief and sadness in his face, they knew that they were the ones who were the cause of that. This brings up a point. Something the sages constantly drive home is that sin is its own punishment. It's not so much a case where God says, oh, you did something wrong, now I need to spank you. God has built into sin its own pain, its own punishment. And uh, when the word tells us in Romans that the wages of sin is death, it's not saying that, oh, because you committed that sin, now I have to kill you. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is, if you're going around a curve and there's a sign that says 25 miles an hour, dangerous curve, and yet you decide to go through that curve at 100 miles an hour, your violation of the sign will be your punishment because you're going to wreck and get injured and and total your car and maybe even be killed. The sin itself is its punishment. And what we see with the brothers in several instances, uh, for example, in Genesis 42, verses 21-22, when they first come to Egypt and uh, they're accused of being spies, they speak to one another in Hebrew, not realizing Joseph can understand them. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. They're looking at the distress they're experiencing in Egypt as punishment for something they did 22 years ago. Do you remember anything you did wrong exactly 22 years ago? I'm sure you did some things wrong, and I did too, but I can't identify exactly what that thing would be that took place 22 years ago. But these brothers, it's obvious from their conversation that what they did so long ago is with them every moment of every day. And everything, something negative happens to them, they say it's because of what we did. Now, what's interesting, God does nothing to the brothers. Joseph does nothing to the brothers. Yeah, he, he scared them, and he did put them in prison for three days, but they still got three meals and, 
and a, a place to sleep, and their animals are taken care of, and then he releases them. But, but uh, he never really does anything vindictive or to intentionally cause physical pain. But everything that happened to them, they interpreted in a painful way. When he returns their money and their sex, they feel horrible because they think somehow this is going to um, really come back to bite us. Uh, everything that happens to them, they interpret in a very negative and painful way. The passage continues, That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now he, there comes a reckoning for his blood. Then later in verse 28, <clears throat> excuse me, he said to his brothers, My money has been put back, back here. It is in the mouth of my sack when they stopped the inn and found out their money had been returned. At this, their hearts failed them. Now, if I found out that somebody had put my money back in my wallet after I'd purchased something, and I realized they'd put it back, I'd be rejoicing. But because of their guilty conscience, they saw even this gift as something, something bad. Their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? And then chapter 44, verse 16. So Judas said, what can we say to my Lord? He's he's talking to, to, to Joseph. What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Everything that happens is painful to them because their minds are imprisoned. This is what sin does to us. You know, nobody ever gets away with anything. No one ever does. They may think they do, but one of two things, or both, can happen. Either, number one, their conscience becomes so guilty that everything becomes painful. Or two, their ability to enjoy their sin is diminished. Whatever pleasure they got from their sin, that pleasure continues to diminish. Their capacity to enjoy life gets smaller and smaller and smaller to where they become almost lifeless corpses themselves. Now, you may be wondering, what's going on with all of this? I mean, Joseph, uh, if, if I was in Joseph's shoes and And after 22 years, I see these brothers of mine coming to Egypt, bowing down to me. The first thing we do is say, hey, guys, I'm Joseph. Uh, Don't worry about anything. You know, all's forgiven. Let's all be one big happy. But Joseph didn't do that. He accuses them of being spies and prisons them for three days. And then he lets them go, but keeps Simeon behind. He says, now you can't come back for more food unless you bring your little brother Benjamin with you. And then when they do come back, he throws this big party for them. And, uh, and then when they begin their journey back home, as I said earlier, he sends a servant uh, to reveal the cup that has been placed in Benjamin's sack. And now he brings them back, accusing Benjamin of being a thief saying, well, he's got to be a slave to me from now on. The rest of you can go, but Benjamin has to pay the price of his crime. Why is Joseph doing all of this? 
You know, it took me the longest time, and I remember when I first started teaching this, I wrestled with these issues. It's like, why? What's, what's Joseph's uh, plan here? And what we see is that Joseph performed four tests on his brothers. The first test was the test, what I call the test of repentance. In chapter 42, you can read it in verses 9 to 24. And uh, he first of all wanted to find out, was there any regret? Did they still experience regret for what they did to Joseph 22 years ago? So, he takes the brothers and accuses them of being spies and, and uh, says they have to go into prison. But then he's listening to hear what they say. And I read you the words that they said. Oh, this is happening to us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. So now he realizes they really have repented. They're really sorry for what they've done. Now you'd think that would be enough. They regret their sin. They've repented of it. You'd think you want to bring relief to them right then and, and reveal yourself. But Joseph realized something that many of us don't. As important as repentance is, and as foundational as repentance is to reestablishing fellowship with God, repentance is not enough. Repentance is not enough. And too many times we act as if repentance is all that's necessary. It's the beginning of a process. But Joseph being wise, Joseph being a picture of Messiah himself, realizes that repentance is not enough. There's a second test, the test of humility. And we find this in chapter 43, verses 33 and 34. When the brothers return to Egypt and they have Benjamin with them, Joseph throws a big party in his house, a big feast. And what does he do? He has the brothers all seated in their birth order, and the brothers are amazed at this. How does this Joseph, this Egyptian, know our ages and seat us according to our birth order? And when the food was brought out, when it came to little Benjamin, he was given five times as much as the other brothers. And don't you know Joseph was watching them with a hawk eye to see if they would look over Benjamin thinking, well, why does he get more than us? You see, 22 years later, their father Jacob had given Joseph a katonit pasim, this coat of many colors, as we translate it. And they were so jealous of him because the father loved Joseph more than the rest. So, in a small way, Joseph is reenacting a similar kind of uh, situation where he gives Benjamin more than the rest to see how they react. But apparently, they didn't look at Benjamin and were not jealous of his, his huge portion, five times as big as theirs. And so they passed that test. Now before I go on, something you have to remember is that Jacob had four wives. He, he fell in love with Rachel, and he worked seven years for her, but when he woke up in the morning, it was her sugliester, Leah. <laughs> and and uh, Leah had six sons, and then Rachel gave her handmaid to Joseph, by which, through whom he had two, and Leah gave her handmaid to, jo- uh, to not Joseph, but Jacob, and through whom he had two more. 
And, uh, and then finally, Rachel has a child, Joseph. And then later, she dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph and Benjamin are brothers of the most loved wife of Rachel, jo- Jacob's beloved. And so these two are together. They're his two favorites. And when Jacob thought he had lost Jacob, uh, Joseph for good and thought Joseph was dead, Benjamin became the favorite. Benjamin became the one he became overly protective of. He's the one he would not allow to go to Egypt with his brothers to get food. And so Joseph realized that the way they treat Benjamin is going to tell me a lot about whether their attitudes have changed. Then there was a third test in chapter 44 in the chapter we're in now, verses 8 to 16. And this is the test of forgiveness. You see, when they discovered the silver goblet, Joseph's silver goblet and Benjamin's sack, how are the brothers going to react? One of the ways they could have reacted is that, yeah, that Benjamin, he's just like his mother, Rachel. Because if you remember, Rachel was a thief. When Jacob and his family and herds fled from Laban, you recall Rachel stole Laban's teraphim, his gods, and hid them in the saddle. And as a result of that, uh, Rachel died prematurely. And so now here's Benjamin. Benjamin appears to be a thief. He has stolen something uh, from Joseph, uh, an object that is claimed to be an occult object, the the cup through which Joseph says, through which I divine. Uh, Although that was kind of a a, um, a red herring. And so how did they look at Benjamin thinking, yeah, you're just like your mom. You're just like Rachel. She was a thief and you're a thief. But they didn't do that. Instead, they were grieved because if something happens to Benjamin, they can't return home with Benjamin. What's it going to do to their father's heart? How is Jacob going to respond if he loses his other son, his other son through Rachel? So they passed that test. And now here is the biggest one. Here is the biggest one in our chapter. Joseph tells the brothers, Benjamin must remain here as a slave. He's going to be a slave to me forever. And Judah, who, whose idea it was 22 years earlier to sell Joseph as a slave, is now in the exact same position once again. And this time, it's Benjamin who's going to be a slave in Egypt. Is Judah going to wash his hands of it and think, well, there we go. There go the two sons of Rachel and good riddance. Or is he going to take steps to change this? Take steps that he didn't take 22 years earlier to spare Joseph. And so we read what Judah did. And as you read through these verses, starting with verse 18, which we've already read, I want us to go on down to verse 33 where Judas says, Now therefore, please let your servant, me, remain instead of the youth as a servant to my master. And let the youth go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father, the youth is not with me, lest I see the evil that would befall my father. Joseph wanted to see 
if Judah truly loved his younger brother, Benjamin. Judah didn't love Joseph, but had Judah grown? Had he changed? Was he willing to sacrifice himself in place of Benjamin? Was he willing to step up and say, take me instead of him? The test of love. Repentance was a good start, but it wasn't enough. There has to go on to this place. Things must receive the place where there's true love. Love for the Father. Such love for the Father that I will give myself as a living sacrifice. And, um, and love for the brothers. So much I'll lay down my life for them. That was the question that Joseph needed answered. And sure enough, Judah passed the test. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy, instead of Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord. I'll give up my freedom for his. Let the boy go back with his brothers. There's a a term for someone who repents to this degree. And uh, you see it often in Jewish literature. The term is Baal Teshuva. And uh, Baal means master. Teshuva means repentance. So a Baal Teshuva is a master of repentance. And we all know the story of, that Yeshua tells. It's in uh, Luke 15. Verses 4 to 7, he says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now get this. Yeshua goes on and says, Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's counterintuitive. I would rejoice more over the 99 who, who <laughs> did what was right rather than the one numbskull who, who strayed away. And I had to leave and go chase after and carry back on my shoulders. But Yeshua says that's not the way it is. There's more rejoicing in heaven over the one bowed to Shuva than over the 99 that didn't go astray. And the rabbis say the reason for this is that the ones who have never gone into the depths of sin don't know what it's like. They don't know the chains of addiction that can entrap a person. And someone who has gone into sin and experienced that and overcomes all of that to come back to righteousness, that is something to be admired. Not that they went into sin, but they exerted the enormous amount of strength and resolve to leave it, to leave the addictions, to leave the chains of sin, and make their way back. And this is reflected also in the Talmud. I'm sorry, um, well, it is reflected in the Talmud. There is a passage there that... uh, that says this, in the place where Baalei Teshuvah, masters of repentance, stand, even the holy righteous do not stand. In other words, the one who has sinned and gone astray and repented and come back, 
says, where that person stands, even the holy righteous cannot stand. As it is stated, peace, peace upon him who is far and him who is near. That's Isaiah 57, 19. And then the Talmud explains, peace and greetings extended first to him who was far, the penitent. And only thereafter is peace extended to him who is near, the holy righteous. Interesting principle. But Maimonides, who lived uh, in the, the 12th century, he writes about teshuva. He says, what is perfect teshuva, perfect repentance? This occurs when an opportunity presents itself for repeating the offense once committed, and the offender is able to commit the offense but refrains from doing so because of the teshuva, not out of fear or failure of vigor. And that describes Judah. He was in the exact, exact same position where he could have committed the exact same sin as before. But he's repented. And this time his, his behavior is exactly opposite of what it was before. Judah has changed. Judah has truly repented. And Judah's love for his father has grown to the point where he could never do to his father Jacob's heart what he had done to it 22 years earlier. And of course, when this happens, Joseph cannot contain himself any longer. He has to reveal himself. Before we get to that, I want to show you something I find fascinating. I call it the secret of Judah's name. And you can see three Hebrew words that just barely fit on the screen. And in the middle, the one with the red rectangle around it, is God's name. It's Yud, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. And we normally write this like that, Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. God's four-letter name, the Tetragrammaton, the name we do not know how to pronounce. Uh, and some translations will say Jehovah, but of course that's not right. There's no J sound in Hebrew. Um, so generally what we say is Adonai, which means the Lord. And when we say Adonai, it's all in caps. That's referring to God's four-letter holy name. Or sometimes we just say Hashem, which means the name. So there is God's name. Now right above it is Judah's name. And in Hebrew it's pronounced Yehuda. Yehuda. You see any similarities between God's name and Judah's name? You'll notice there's a Yud, and there's a He, and there's a Vav, and then the last letter of Judah's name is also a He. In other words, Judah's name contains God's name. It's the only one of the 12 brothers whose name contains the name of God. But we have this one additional letter. We have the letter Dalit. Now what's interesting about this letter Dalit is that its name means door. Dalit is door. And uh, supposedly this letter is shaped like a door flap. So you see the ceiling and the door flap dropping down. So Judah's name is God's name with a door inside of it. Now, who is the one who said, I am the door? That would be Yeshua. And which tribe did Yeshua come through? It was the tribe of Judah. 
a descendant of this man who stands before Joseph and saying, take me instead of him. Is that what Yeshua did? And, um, of course, Yeshua had no need for repentance as Judah did. But it's amazing to see how Judah grew into something that resembles Messiah. So the door to God comes to us through the tribe of Judah, Yehuda. Now, who was the first great king of Israel who was a descendant of Judah? Because the kings come through Judah. uh, Saul was the first king who came through Benjamin, but uh, all the rest of the kings then came from Judah. And who's that first great king? That great king, of course, is David, David. And here's David's name. And here's something I want you to notice that I find fascinating. I'm going to change my pen here for a second to a large white nib. If we take God's name and we take the three yuds here and remove them, look what we have. We have David's name. And when Benjamin, I'm sorry, when Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, when he was rejected from being king, Samuel said, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Adonai, yud heh has sought out a man after his own heart. Who is that man? David. And do you see how David is a man? Sorry about that. Is a man after God's own heart? I mean, literally. Because the name David is included in the name yud heh So David is found inside God's name. Oh, I better change that back. David is found inside God's name. And God's name is found inside Judah's name. Fascinating. So at least I find it fascinating. But these are some of the wonders that are revealed through the Hebrew that are not revealed in any other translation. So let's continue with chapter 45, and let's start with verse 1. In the email I sent out, I shared that this Torah portion of the Yigash is like, of all the Torah portions, is my favorite, because there's just something absolutely incredible that occurs in this chapter right here, particularly, chapter 45. So in Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin. It says in 45.1, Now Joseph could not restrain himself in the presence of all who stood before him. So he called out, Remove everyone from before me. Thus no one remained with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Now think for a moment. Right now, the vast majority of the Jewish people do not recognize Yeshua as their brother, Yeshua as their savior. But In the coming seven years of tribulation, Yeshua is going to reveal his identity to his Jewish brothers and sisters. And here, in chapter 45, we find ourselves in a seven-year period of tribulation, a seven-year famine. And it's during this seven years of famine that Joseph's brothers come to him. They don't recognize him. 
He recognizes them, though. To them, he's a Gentile. But uh, in his heart, and, and Joseph is about to let them know he is not a Gentile, he's a Jew. He's their brother. He's their savior. And so everyone leaves, and it says, No one remained with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He cried in a loud voice, Egypt heard, and Pharaoh's household heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, Ani Yosef, Ani Yosef, I, Joseph, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him because they were left disconcerted before him. Their minds were blown, in other words. Then Joseph said to his brothers, and here's that word, you know, the, the name of the Torah portion is Vayigash, from the word Gasha. Here's that word again. Draw close to me. Gashu na. Draw close, please, close to me. And isn't that Messiah's cry to his brothers? Come close to me, please. And they came close. And he said, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother. It is me whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, nor reproach yourselves. You know, earlier where Judah <laughs> approached Joseph and says, don't let your anger flare up. He's using basically the same language now when Joseph says to them, don't be angry with yourselves. The 22 years of regret and pain and hell that you've had in your brains and in your souls, it's over. Don't reproach yourselves. The days of beating yourself up for what you did, those days are over. I have no regrets of what you did. And he'll tell them later on that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And what you did brought salvation to the world. Because if you had not done what you did, I would not have come to Egypt. I would not have ascended to be a king in Egypt, to be the one who is Pharaoh's hand, the king's hand, to accomplish this great deliverance, not just for Egypt, but for you and for the people of the world. None of that would have happened if you hadn't sold me, if you hadn't have hated me, if you hadn't done this horrible thing. But what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do you wrap your head around that? Because that's a picture of how God operates. Where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. And there's nothing we can do that sidetracks God's plan. But he even takes our petty rebellions and sins and shortcomings and weaves them into his plan and purpose. What a God we have. So, <clears throat> do not reproach yourselves for having sold me here, for it was to be a provider. It's a, a lamichia, which is very close to the word for resurrection, a, a life giver, a life returner. For it was to be a provider that God sent me ahead of you. So in other words, guys, truthfully, you didn't send me here. God sent me ahead of you. He used your rebellion and sin to do it, but, you know, he uses everything. But it was still God's purpose. For this has been two of the hunger years in the midst of the land, and there are yet five years of which there shall be neither plowing nor harvest. 
You know, people wonder, when does the tribulation begin? And how do we recognize it? Well, there are different hints and so on. And as you know, I tend to avoid end-time prophecy things uh, because the man's track record for getting them right is uh, pretty horrible. But I think one of the things we can know for sure, when we see the Jewish people as a people turn to Yeshua and recognize him openly as their Messiah, we'll know that we're in the second year of the tribulation. But that's just me. Verse 7, Thus God has sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant in the land and to sustain you for momentous deliverance. And now it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh, master of his entire household, and ruler throughout the entire land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, So said your son Joseph. In other words, I want you to approach the father in my name. Go to my father and say, This is what your son said. And isn't that how we approach our father in prayer in the name of Yeshua? So when you think about what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name, go back to this passage, because this helps us understand it. Go to my father and say to him, So said your son Joseph, God has made me master of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You will reside in the land of Goshen. Now that land, the name Goshen, uh, does that sound familiar? It also comes from that word gasha, to draw close. And when we look at what Goshen means, it means God wants to settle us in a place that's close to him. He wants us to find our new home in a place that's close, that's near. And you will be near to me, you, your sons, your grandchildren, it goes on. You know, you may think I'm making a, a really big deal out of this this revelation of Joseph's identity to his brothers. But you know, I'm not the only one. Uh, I always, as I read through Jewish literature, I always mark places where they refer to this because I always find it enlightening and memorable. So I'm going to share four examples of that with you. This first one is from the Vilna Gon, who lived from 1720 to 1797. Uh, Gon means genius. And he probably second only to Solomon, was probably the most brilliant man who ever lived. Incredible man. I could tell you stories, but we don't have time. And this is what the Vilna Gon writes about this passage. It says, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. This is one of the traits of Joseph, not only in his own generation, but in every generation i.e. that Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. This is the case of the vast majority of the Jewish people today. Messiah recognizes them and loves them and knows them. He died, gave his life for them. And the day is coming when he'll reveal himself to them, but right now they don't recognize him. The Gon continues, This is the work of Satan who hides the characteristics of Mashiach ben Yosef so that the footsteps of the Mashiach are not recognized and are even belittled because of our many sins. 
Otherwise, our troubles would already have ended. Were Israel to recognize Yosef, then we would already have been redeemed with a complete redemption. Amazing, amazing passage. Here's another. This is from the Kofetz Chaim, and I know many of you have studied the Kofetz Chaim book, uh, several books actually, on uh, Lashon Hara. His book uh, called A Lesson a Day that takes the writings of the Kofetz Chaim and makes them into a daily devotional so we can learn how to control our, our evil tongues. He lived from 1838 to 1933. This is what he says. When Joseph said, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, God's master plan became clear to the brothers. They had no more questions. Everything that had happened for the last 22 years fell into perspective. So too will it be in the time to come when God will reveal himself and announce, I am Adonai. The veil will be lifted from our eyes and we will, we will comprehend everything that transpired throughout history. What a, a powerful passage. And um, Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Tursky, who just passed away earlier this year, uh, wrote many books, and they're wonderful books for people who are just coming into Messianic Judaism. I highly recommend Tversky's books, though he was not a Messianic Jew. He loved Messiah. He just didn't recognize that Jesus was that Messiah, at least as far as we know. But his books are very accessible and very wise, and uh, he was a psychiatrist who wrote much about how to deal with anger, how to deal with addiction, how to deal with marriage problems, and his books are, are brilliant. He wrote about all kinds of topics, and uh, they really are a joy to read. Well, he also produced a Haggadah. He took the traditional Passover Haggadah that we use during the Passover Seder, and he added his own commentary to it. And this is one of his comments. It's in the section of the Haggadah where the afikomen, the piece of broken matzah that was wrapped in linen and hidden away, that after the meal... Uh, the kids search for it and bring it back. And, of course, the afikoman is a picture of Messiah who was, who was broken and he was white, wrapped in linen and buried, but he came back. And this is what Tversky writes about that. He says, We complete the Seder meal by removing the afikoman matzah from its hiding place. The matzah, which represents the redemption, the matzah, which represents the redemption, was hidden for some time. And only at the end of the meal is it revealed. This symbolizes the ultimate redemption. Once the latter is realized and is revealed, we will understand that it was with us all the time. Did you catch that? We will understand that it was with us all the time. Throughout the centuries of suffering in the diaspora, although it was concealed from our view. I just can't help but wonder if Tversky knew more about Yeshua than, than uh, we think. One more. This is from Rabbi Avigdor Miller. If, uh, and now he passed away in 2001. But if Avigdor Miller had been raised in a Baptist church, he would have been holding tent revivals. He was that kind of a guy. He was a preacher. And ultra-Orthodox, but he loved to preach. Loved to preach uh, the truth of Torah and how to live the life. And he takes a little bit different take on this uh, passage where Joseph says, I am Joseph, Ani Yosef. 
He says, the words on Neosef are truly terrifying words, and they should make us shudder too. Only, we don't think when we read them. They bounce off our thick heads, and we don't absorb the intended lesson. We're completely oblivious. That's why I tell people that these words on Neosef are the most fearful words in the entire Torah. It's a verse that should fill every thinking man with apprehension. Because in the great day of judgment, we too will discover that we have been living in error. I'm not saying it's all error, but everyone is deceiving themselves to a very, very great extent. And on the day of judgment, the truth will be revealed before our horrified eyes, and we will not have a tongue to answer. Those are some sobering words, aren't they? And you know... As Messianic believers, we rejoice because we do recognize who Yosef is and who Mashiach ben Joseph, who Yeshua is. And we are so happy, we're filled with joy at that. And yet, there's still plenty of blindness to go around, even for us who claim to see. It's how many times do we, like Joseph's brothers, complain about our circumstances because we do not see Yeshua, in the midst of them. And we put ourselves in our own mental hell with anxiety and with worry, and then we complain and, when, and we accuse, and we can even come close to accusing God for our misery instead of thanking him for his presence in the pain. And someday we will stand before God He'll reveal himself as Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers. And God will reveal every incident in our lives that we interpret as being painful, as distressing. And we'll complain that God wasn't with us or we'll give Satan the glory for what happened. And uh, it will replay the words that we said, words of complaint and worry and accusation. And then God will peel back the curtain to show us he was right there with us every moment. And he was in the pain. He was the one who was using it to mature us, to grow us, to develop us, to make us into the men and women he wants us to be. And we're going to experience some pain at that moment. And we'll so wish we could go back and relive all of those moments and recognize that God was in the midst of them and relive those moments in faith instead of in faithlessness and doubt. Anyways, as we continue in chapter 14, we come to verse, I'm sorry, 45, we come to verse 14. It says, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon Joseph's neck. He then kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. Afterwards, his brothers conversed with him. There's a whole lot of weeping going on in in the story of Joseph. In fact, uh, the Torah records Joseph weeping seven times. Seven's the number of perfection. And we're told also that Yeshua wept. And, you know, weeping is a... a, uh, Fascinating thing. And in the Thursday update, I asked you to think about it. Why, why did God create us human beings so that 
water can come out of our eyes. Why is that? It's kind of an odd thing, yet it's something ordained by God. And there's a day coming when that ends, uh, when he will wipe tears away from every eye and weeping will be over. That'll be a past thing. Weeping is something that happens now, but uh, well, someday it'll be obsolete. It'll no longer occur. So what is the deal with weeping? And if you think about it, unless there's uh, an allergy <laughs> or some intense pain that just causes water to squirt out, weeping itself takes place under two occasions. The first one is great joy. The other is great sorrow. Isn't it odd that we have the same response to both? And as I've gotten older and I think my, my, my heart's gotten softer, not, hopefully not my head, but my heart, I find myself beginning to feel tears well up more often when I experience something beautiful, when I when I, uh, it used to be when I was at a wedding, I just kind of be, what's everybody crying about? This is stupid. But anymore, weddings are a time when I see the joy of a bride and groom coming together. This, I feel tears coming up. There's, there's so much rejoicing going on. It's a great joy, great pain. And when you think about it, when a child is born, what's that child's first expression? Weeping. The very first thing a child does when it's born it starts to cry. And we all rejoice. This child just been thrust out of a very warm, cozy place into this bright light and it's cold and it's like, what's going on? And it's frightened and wah, it starts crying. And everyone else is laughing and tears of joy. When that child grows older, when that child's 100 years old, it would be filled with joy at its own death. And everyone around would be filled with weeping. It's interesting. Our lives are bookended in this way, isn't it? So weeping is attached to joy and sorrow, to birth and to death. And so here's a question for you. If you want to pause and think about this, the question is, what ritual do we have in Torah, a ritual that we're invited and commanded to participate in, that encapsulates both of these, and it involves water? So pause if you have to take a moment to think. When you're ready, here's the answer. The mikvah. The mikvah, when you immerse yourself in the mikvah, it's a picture of death. When you're putting away this past phase of life, and when you come out, it's a picture of rebirth. And you come out starting a new phase of life. Death and birth in water, in the mikvah. I like to suggest that when you weep from joy or from sorrow, that it's an internal kind of a, a mikvah. It's not a physical one that you put your body in, but it's a spiritual one where the water comes from your body. Because you can go to the mikvah, a cold, hard-hearted individual just following through legalistically some ritual, and come out the same way with no change. But when you truly weep, that is pretty difficult to fake. And when there are true tears of repentance, 
of true godly sorrow and of true godly joy, then that's real. And you know, I, I, I'm reminded of two instances in the Gospels. One is in Luke and one is in John, where women come and anoint Yeshua's feet. He's reclining at the table and a woman comes up and anoints or washes his feet. There are two separate instances. In the one case, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 7, this occurs in a Pharisee's home. The other case, in John 12, occurs in Lazarus' home. In Luke 7, it's a sinful woman whose name is not provided, and she comes up behind Yeshua and tears. She washes his feet in tears and dries them with her hair. Why is she crying? Well, Yeshua says she's been forgiven much. She's a sinful woman who's been forgiven. So these are tears of incredible joy. But in John 12, it's Lazarus' sister Mary who comes up behind Yeshua. But it's not tears, it's anointing oil. It's a spikenard, it's this very, very expensive ointment. And she, she breaks the box and anoints his feet with this ointment and, um, and dries his feet with her hair like the previous woman did. And in both stories, there's a complaint. When the sinful woman washes Yeshua's feet with her tears, the Pharisees say, oh, doesn't he know she's sinful? He shouldn't let her touch him. And when Mary anoints Yeshua's feet with this oil, Judas complains, says, oh, we could have sold that and made a lot of money and given it to the poor. Look, it's being wasted. But what did Yeshua say about the oil? She's anointed me ahead of time for burial. With the one woman, we see tears of joy because she's entering into a new life. With the other, we see a kind of anointing preparing for death. I just find the two instances interesting. They, they form a menorah pattern, so you need to, to line them up. There's much to be gained from those. But we do know that a new day is coming when God will wipe away all tears from every eye. And... Um, and the days of weeping will be over. But with all this discussion about weeping, and you can continue, there's much to be said, and I'm still thinking about this. There's, uh, I, I, I know that I'm missing a lot more than what I'm sharing, but hopefully it'll get you thinking. But something we need to realize, and that is there are crocodile tears. There are people who weep, and the weeping is entirely fake and false. And I've met people, and I myself have also been deceived by the tears of, of others. Rabbi Yitzhak Ginsberg, who is a, a living rabbi, lives in Israel, brilliant, brilliant man, and very insightful and wise. He writes about this portion, and he talks about weeping. And um, he talks about the different kinds of weeping. But he also gives a warning. He says, there's a fine line between self-pity and real compassion. Tears of self-pity are passive and inert. They only serve to inflate the individual's ego with self-centered thoughts about how deprived and unfortunate he is. This egotistic tendency may become so powerful that it even causes the individual to turn against others by blaming them for his misfortune. Ultimately, self-pity can deteriorate into turning against the Almighty Himself. 
don't be deceived by the tears of the sociopath, by the tears of self-pity. They can look like repentance, but they aren't. They're completely self-centered. They're not centered on others at all. Well, my clock tells me our time is about gone, but uh, we, we need to, to, to look at Benjamin a little bit. We, we mentioned that Benjamin is Joseph's only brother through Rachel. But Benjamin's very unique. Among the 12 brothers, Benjamin's incredibly unique. Uh, he, he's in a category all of his own. And the question is, what does Benjamin represent? What is he a picture of to us? And I believe that Benjamin is a picture, a type of the Messianic believer, the Jew who believes in Yeshua as his Messiah and Savior now. Because this is very unique among the Jewish people. Uh, Someday the law come to awareness of who Yeshua is, but those who know him now, those among the Jewish people, Benjamin's a picture of them. Now, I've listed a few things here that, uh, that show how Benjamin's unique, but there are more. But I wanted to keep the li- uh, list fairly condensed. But he is the only son born in Israel. All the other brothers were all born outside of Israel. But if you recall, when jo- uh, Jacob went back to his homeland with uh, his wives and 11 sons and his daughters and cattle and everything... When they got as far as to the edge of Bethlehem, Rachel went into labor, and Rachel gave birth, and then she died there. And uh, I've been to Rachel's tomb, which is just on the outskirts of, of Bethlehem. Rachel wanted to call him Benoni, son of my sorrow. And isn't that how Jews look at other Jews who have decided to follow Yeshua? Son of my sorrow, they reject them, they They are no longer Jews. They're no longer our brothers and our children. But Jacob says no. His name is going to be Benjamin, son of the right hand. In other words, the son is especially close to me. And Jews who know Yeshua as their Savior are especially close to the Father. Joseph's the only one who did not participate in the sale of Joseph. The cup of Joseph was hidden with Benjamin. The cup is a picture of, uh, that Yeshua uses of those who want to follow him. Take this cup. This is my blood of the new covenant that is shed for you. Drink all of it. And people who drink from the cup show that they are going to unite themselves with Yeshua. They're going to accept his proposal and they're going to become faithful to him. So the cup is hidden with Benjamin. He receives greater blessing, five times as much, and later he receives more uh, changes of clothing than the other brothers. His soul is bound to the fathers, we're told in our Torah portion. He is absent from most of the narrative. Most of the narrative is not about Benjamin, it's about the other brothers. Um, He had to wait for his brothers to catch up. Because you see, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he sends all the brothers home to bring their families and so on. But when they do come back, Benjamin's already there. He's been there with his brother Joseph while the others are are catching up. Benjamin was a small tribe compared to the rest, but a tribe of great significance because it was in his territory that the temple, God's house, was located. And... um, 
Benjamin and Judah's territories abut one another, and the line between the two territories pass right around the altar. The altar and the temple are in Benjamin's territory. The rest of the outer court and the temple mount onto the uh, south and uh, east are in Judah's territory. So God made his house in the territory of Benjamin. And of course, Paul, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, was a Benjamite from this tribe. And he was very proud of that, as he should be. Well, I'm not going to go over this with you, but in the notes you'll find a list of Jacob's seven troubles. These are listed in the Talmud, and I have to agree with this list. Jacob went through seven terrible troubles, terrible tests, painful situations. But every single one of them, all seven, contained incredible blessing. So part of your challenge is to go through these seven and uh, review what they were, and the pain was obvious. But each one brought incredible fruitfulness and blessing. Can you unwrap them to see how God was in the middle of all seven of these? And in the verse, and Elohim spoke to Israel. You know, God spoke to Israel when he came, left Laban and came back to the land. But then God was kind of silent, as far as we know, for many years. But when Jacob is getting ready to go back to Egypt, or going to Egypt to meet his son Joseph, God speaks to him again. And it says in chapter 46, verse 2, Vayomer Elohim Yisrael, and Elohim spoke to Israel. And in most Torah scrolls, that sheen that we find right there in the word Israel is written with in an unusual way. Instead of just having three tagin, three tittles on top, it has seven. It's the only sheen, the only time this letter is written in the Torah with seven decorations on top. And so it's thought that these seven crowns in Yisrael's name represent his victory over these seven great testings. And, you know, James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So who knows? Maybe God ordained that that sheen in most Torah scrolls. A scribe has freedom to add these decorations kind of as he wants. But uh, generally, in many cases, there are seven titles, seven decorations, seven crowns on the sheen in the name Israel, Jacob's name. So your discussion questions. Why did Judah confront Joseph instead of one of his three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, or Levi? Two, describe how each of Jacob's seven troubles was really a blessing in disguise. This is a great exercise. Three, can you think of an instance in your own life when a sin itself was also its own punishment, where you did something wrong and nobody had to punish you? The sin itself was the punishment. Number four, if we truly want to please God, why is repentance not enough? What is it God wants from us beyond repentance? Repentance is the beginning. It's first base. But you don't get any points for just reaching first base. You have to go ahead and, and circle the bases. So why is repentance not enough? 
And number five, everything is a test. You hear me say that over and over and over again. Everything is a test. Do you agree? Why or why not? So I hope you enjoy these discussion questions. I like these. I'm especially fond of these questions this week. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this amazing passage. And I pray that those who are studying, especially those studying together in groups, will, uh, will take time to really ponder these questions and to wrestle with them. And, and even alone, Lord, help us to wrestle these and get satisfying answers to them. Lord, teach us what you will through this passage. And I pray, Father, that your people will come to know their hidden Messiah quickly and soon. And Father, may we live our lives in preparation for that day when you reveal yourself to us and we see you face to face. In the meantime, help us not to waste time, to waste our energies, but Father, to invest them in your kingdom. And we ask this in the name of the King, Yeshua. Amen.